Okay, we're beginning our study of the letter of Paul to Titus this afternoon, and uh, I want to read uh, just Titus chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Uh, Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, I'd like to begin our study of this epistle by talking a little bit about the life and the letters of the Apostle Paul. Uh, You can, uh, depending on whose opinion you take in these matters, you can divide the Apostle Paul's life into three or four parts, or four or five parts, excuse me. There's first of all, of course, his life from his birth to the time of his conversion. We know very little about this period of life. He was the son of a Pharisee who lived in Tarsus on the northeast coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, he came apparently to Jerusalem in the first place to be trained in the law, to become a Pharisee himself. And he was instructed while he was there in Jerusalem by Gamaliel, one of the famous teachers of the Jews at that time. And we know, of course, also that he was one of the most zealous persecutors of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in its early years. 
The second period of his life is the period from his conversion to the beginning of his missionary journeys. This apparently covers a period of about 14 years. And again, we don't know too much about this period of his life. Um, Galatians chapters 1 and 2 tell us most of what we know. He spent time in the city of Damascus. He spent time in Arabia. And he spent some time also in Jerusalem during that period. Then, of course, we have the period of his missionary journeys, largely, of course, recorded for us in the book of Acts, chapters 13 and following. Following that, his imprisonment, first in Jerusalem, then in Caesarea, and finally in Rome. And then, depending on whose opinion you uh, accept in this matter, Paul may have been released from prison to do some more mission work, and he may even during this time have gone to Spain to do mission work. And then following that, a um, second imprisonment and his martyrdom at the hands of Nero. Now, Paul's letters fall into different periods, of course not in those first two periods of his life, but during his missionary journeys, uh, the following ones, uh, Galatians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and Romans. During his first imprisonment, if that's the way you take this, uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, definitely written from prison, um, around the year 61. After his release from prison, if he was indeed released, 1 Timothy and Titus, in the period 62 to 65, and finally 2 Timothy during his second imprisonment prior to his martyrdom in about 67 AD. So Titus is late in his life and probably after he was released from prison the first time. I also want to talk a little bit about Titus. We don't read about Titus at all in the book of Acts. He's never mentioned in the book of Acts. But he was a Gentile Christian and uh, the earliest we know of him is that he was with Paul at Jerusalem according to Galatians 2, verses 1 to 3. It was while Paul and Titus were together there at Jerusalem that Paul refused to circumcise Titus. Now, of course, that raises the question, why did he circumcise Timothy? We read about that in Acts 16, I believe. But he refused to circumcise Titus. Well, he circumcised Timothy, I think, because... There was no problem at that point with the Judaizers, and it would be uh, more uh, suitable for Paul to, as he worked with the Jews on his missionary journeys, to have someone circumcised with him. That would not become an issue then with them. But when the Judaizers tried at Jerusalem to impose circumcision as a demand on Gentile believers in the New Testament period, Paul resisted and refused absolutely to submit to that uh, wicked demand of the Judaizers. 
While Paul was on his second and perhaps third missionary journeys, uh, Titus was probably with him part of the time, but spent considerable time at the city of Corinth. And we read most of what we know about Titus in 2 Corinthians. I want to refer to the various passages there in 2 Corinthians to, uh, so that we can see what the letter has to say. Timothy, or Titus, was working in the city of Corinth while Paul was continuing his missionary journeys. Paul probably wrote 2 Corinthians from Ephesus, and Paul was deeply concerned about the state of the Corinthian church because of all the problems there, which are enumerated for us in 1 Corinthians. And Paul expresses his concern not only for the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians, but also his concern for the effect his letter to the Corinthians had had on the church. He was very deeply concerned about that church in Corinth. That's undoubtedly why Titus remained there while Paul continued with his journeys. So we read in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 12 and 13, 2 Corinthians 2, verses 12 and 13, this. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I did not find Titus my brother. I take, But taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. So Paul was in Troas, he left there, even though there was an opportunity to preach the gospel on his way to Macedonia, and undoubtedly on his way to try to find out where Titus was. He wanted to hear from Titus about the state of the church in Corinth. Then again, in uh, chapter 7, verses 5 and 6, chapter 7, verses 5 and 6, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. So you see, he's still very troubled. He hasn't yet heard. He's in Macedonia now, but he hasn't yet heard from Titus. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. And he refers to this again in verse 13 of that chapter, therefore we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. So Titus left Corinth, met Paul in Macedonia, and brought to him good news about the church in Corinth. In chapter 8, verse 6 of the same book, we read, So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. That is, the grace of generosity to the poor saints, which had been demonstrated so uh, wonderfully by the saints in Macedonia. And finally, in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 18, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 18, he's talking here about how he never took advantage of the 
Corinthians while he was among them, and he says, I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? So Titus ministered for some time in the church at Corinth. But here in the book of Titus, we find Titus on the island of Crete. And uh, Paul writes to him there on the island of Crete, an island south of Greece in the Mediterranean Sea. We don't know who first preached the gospel in Crete. Uh, Crete is not mentioned as a place that Paul visited on his missionary journeys. And we don't know, therefore, who founded the churches there, whether it was Paul himself or whether it was Titus or somebody else. Paul had been there before he wrote this letter to Titus. You find that in Titus 1, verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete. So he had been there with Titus. He had left Titus there as he went on to another place. And Paul had friends there, knew some of the people there in Crete, as we find from chapter 3, verse 15 where he says, greet those who love us in the faith. So Titus served also in Crete for some time. And then finally in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, we find that Timothy had gone on from Crete to Dalmatia. Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, in chapter 4, verse 10, For Demas has forsaken forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. Cress gains for, Titus, for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. So Titus had been there with him in the city of Rome, apparently, during the time of his imprisonment, but he had then gone on to Dalmatia. Dalmatia is, by the way, on the east coast of the Adriatic Sea, across from Italy, what we would uh, know today as Croatia. So Titus had served in at least three different places during the life of the Apostle Paul. And at the time that Paul wrote to him was on the island of Crete. Let's talk for a little bit, too, about the letter that Paul wrote to Titus. Then, in general, the structure, first of all, uh, the, the structure of the epistles, very straightforward, very easy to discern, not difficult at all to follow. In the first four verses of the epistle, we have Paul's greeting to Titus, and we'll come back to that in a moment. In the rest of chapter 1, we have uh, Paul's instructions to Titus to ordain elders in every city and uh, to ordain these elders, especially with the purpose of answering those who were contradicting the truth of the gospel. That's in verses 10 to uh, 16 of chapter 1. Then in chapter 2, we have Paul's uh, exhortation to Titus to teach various groups within the churches of Crete. 
He speaks of what he's to teach the older men, the older women, the younger uh, women, the younger men, and bondservants. And he concludes that section with uh, a discussion of grace as the theological basis for Christian living. That's chapter 2. In chapter 3, verses 1 to 11, he, he teaches, uh, or he urges Titus to be teaching all the saints there in Crete uh, about doing good works. The focus there is on doing good works, verses 1 to 11, and avoiding foolish disputes, especially in verses 9 to 11. And finally, his conclusion, various matters in the conclusion, verses 12 to 15 of chapter 3. That's briefly the outline then, and you can see the chapters pretty much follow that outline. The most important part of what we want to talk about this afternoon is the um, uh, prominent features of this book. There are a number of these that we're going to be talking about, uh, six to be exact. First of all, uh, there's the length of Paul's greeting. If you look at most of the other letters of the Apostle Paul, his greetings uh, are usually just one or two verses at the beginning of the letter. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the saints who are in Ephesus, that kind of thing. But there are three letters where Paul does not follow that pattern. The first is Romans 1, where he has a salutation or greeting of seven verses. The second is Galatians, where the greeting takes up five verses. And the third is this one, this short epistle to Titus, which takes up the first four verses of the chapter, and which has in it, of course, this uh, summary of Christian doctrine, of the grace of God to the saints in those verses. And again, we'll be coming back to that uh, later. So it's a long salutation, unusually long salutation that Paul has here in this letter. Second major concern, which we have to note here in this letter, is Paul's concern for sound doctrine. There's, uh, he mentions this whole idea of sound doctrine uh, at least three times. You find it in chapter 1, verse 9 where he's uh, saying, telling Titus what the elders need to do. He says that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Also in chapter 2, verse 1, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. And in chapter 2, verse 7, Whereas he's exhorting Titus himself in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned. Besides these references to doctrine, you have also references to truth in chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14, and to soundness in faith, 
in chapter 1, verse 13, and chapter 2, verse 2. So there's a a great concern with sound doctrine in the letter. And this is consistent with Paul's letters also to Timothy. Those two letters to Timothy also have a, a deep concern for sound doctrine. Paul had made it his business during his whole ministry in the churches that he had founded to teach sound doctrine. And his letters, of course, all of his letters are full of this sound doctrine. We could give many, many examples of the doctrinal instruction of the Apostle Paul in his letters. He himself had this concern for teaching sound doctrine and As Timothy and Titus took over for him and carried on the work of the ministry of the gospel, he was very interested that they not lose that focus on sound doctrine, that they not begin to slack off in that regard. He wanted them to continue this instruction in sound doctrine. There is also in this letter to Titus, a corresponding concern with false doctrine, and especially uh, a concern with false doctrines from Jewish teachers. You can see that, first of all, in chapter 1, verse 11. Chapter 1, verse 11, where he says about these false teachers whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. And again, in verse 14, it becomes clear that this is particularly Jewish false doctrine, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. Then you find in uh, chapter 1, verse... Excuse me, not chapter uh, 1, but chapter... Um, 3 verse 9, this same uh, concern with uh, false teaching, but avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. So the concern for sound doctrine is accompanied by a corresponding concern with uh, refuting and suppressing false doctrine, especially Jewish false doctrine. And I think this explains why we have those summaries of the uh, Christian doctrine, which Paul had been teaching, three of them, in this book of Titus. You have the the one in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, another one in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, and a third one in chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. And there are two words that stand out uh, more than any others in those three discussions of the doctrines of the faith. The first is grace. That word appears in all three of those passages. In uh, verse 4 of chapter 1, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father. In chapter 2, verse 11, Chapter 2, verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. 
And then again in chapter 3, verse 7, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's not at all difficult, of course, to understand why Paul would be concerned about grace in this epistle. As he's summarizing the uh, Christian doctrine, which he himself had been teaching and which he wanted Timothy and Titus to teach as well, he talks about, especially about the grace of God. The other word that appears in these passages, for the most part, is the word Savior. Three times in these passages, he mentions God, our Savior. Chapter 1, verse 3, first of all, where he says that the gospel was committed to me according to the commandment of God, our Savior. In chapter 2, verse 10, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. And in chapter 3, verse 4, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward men appeared. So three times he speaks of God our Savior, and three times also of Christ our Savior. In 1 verse 4, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. In chapter 2 verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice he calls Christ our great God there in chapter 2, verse 13. And then again in chapter 3, verse 6, whom he poured out on us, that's the Holy Spirit, abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So three times he refers to God our Savior, three times to Christ our Savior. And each time he refers to Christ our Savior, it's in close proximity to the references to God our Savior. He's not teaching that we have two saviors. He's teaching us that we have our salvation from God, through Christ his Son, and by grace. This is one of the main focuses of the letter. Teaching this sound doctrine about salvation by grace, coming from God through His Son. But there is also, in the letter, a concern for good works. You find frequent references to good works here in the letter. Chapter 1, verse 16. They profess to know God, that's these false teachers, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Chapter 2, verses 7 and 14. Verse 7 first, he says to Titus, In all things show yourself to be a pattern of good works. And in verse 14, as he's discussing grace, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us for every lawless deed, and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. In chapter 3, verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. In chapter 3, verse 8, 
be careful to maintain good works. And then in the even in the conclusion, verse 14, let our people also learn to maintain good works. So there's this strong concern for doing good works. And we see that concern for good works also in the fact that in that middle part of the epistle where he's telling Titus to instruct these various groups in the churches, his concern is primarily with their doing good works. He wants them to be doing good works. And the first few verses of chapter 3 also are focused on the good works that they are to be doing, though that also contains that summary of doctrine. So you have this concern for doing good works. And these are inseparable for, from the sound doctrine. The two are tied together. He says in chapter 1, verse 1 of the epistle, that uh, he speaks of the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. The truth which accords with godliness. And he makes very clear in chapter 2, verses 11 and following, that the grace of God that brings salvation teaches us to do good works. So he, he summarizes Christian doctrine and he says this doctrine has as its goal that we should do good works. You can't do the good works that God wants you to do unless you understand sound doctrine. And therefore also this, these good works adorn the doctrine of God according to chapter 2 verse 10. Not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. You have these two concerns. Sound doctrine and good works. But one more thing. One other word that's very prominent in this epistle. And it's it's very striking that this word should be found here in this epistle so many times again. Six or seven times in this short letter, you have the word sober-minded, or some form of that word. Sober-minded. And basically, this word means to uh, be sane, to be in one's right mind. You find it used, for example, in Mark chapter 5, verse 15. Mark 5, verse 15. Jesus has just healed the man, or just cast out of the man with the demons out of the man who had a legion of them in him. And the people of the country come to Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 15. They came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. It's the same word that we have here in Titus. Sin distorts our thinking. Sin makes us abnormal, mentally abnormal. It perverts all of man's thoughts. And the gospel restores us to sanity. There is really, in scriptural teaching, no sanity except as one conforms his mind 
to the teaching of the Scriptures and his life as well. And Paul is deeply concerned then with this sanity, this sober-mindedness. First of all, he makes it a qualification of the elders in chapter 1, verse 8. They are to be hospitable, lovers of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, and self-controlled. He mentions it again when he's telling Titus how to instruct these various groups in chapter 2. So with regard to old, older men, he says, chapter 2, verse 2, that the older men be sober, that means actually not drunken, reverent, temperate, that's the same word, sober-minded or sane, sound in faith, in love, in patience. He applies the same word also to younger women in verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands. He's uh, talking about the older women, that they admonish. And that word admonish there is a verb form of the same word that means sober-minded, that they make the younger women sober-minded to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, and there the word is again, to be sober-minded, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands that the word of God be not blasphemed. You find it again in verse 6, with regard to the younger men. Likewise exhort the younger men to be sober-minded. So, with regard to three of the five groups that Paul uh, instructs Timothy to uh, teach, he mentions this virtue of sober-mindedness. And he mentions it still one more time, and that's in Verse 12 of chapter 2. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly. Same word again. The grace of God teaches us that we should live soberly. So this sober-mindedness is a, a major concern of the apostle here. I think those are the the three lessons that we should take away from this epistle, this introduction to the epistle. First of all, we need to be concerned with sound doctrine. And we'll see what that sound doctrine involves as we examine those three passages in the book that talk about the grace of God. Secondly, we need to be concerned with doing good works. And thirdly, we need to be concerned with sober-mindedness. Sober-mindedness so that we can uh, take in that sound doctrine, which we need to hear, and sober-mindedness then as, uh, if you will, the kind of pathway to doing all the good works that God requires of us. Be sound in faith. Be doing good works to adorn that faith and be sober-minded so that you may receive the teaching of the Scriptures and so that you may live as God commands you to live. May God bless His Word.